good day. You're tuned into Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. This week, I'm producing the program from Mexico City. This is edition 203. On the broadcast today, we are going to be featuring a book that has recently come out called Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century. This is a project that builds on Howard Zinn's groundbreaking book, A People's History of the United States, uh, a very important uh, book of radical history. Uh, recently, there has been a reimagining in the contemporary setting of this very important work, uh, highlighting histories of social movements uh, with a new edition. This project is edited by Anthony Arnov and Haley Pesson who have published a book that looks at the voices of people who are active right now uh, and in recent years on topics ranging from migrant justice to uh, international solidarity to Black Lives Matter. There are more than 100 speeches, essays, and documents about activism, protests, and social change that are included in this book. Uh, voices of a people's history of the United States in the 21st century. I had the chance to speak with Anthony and Haley, and I wanted to share our conversation. So here it is. Now is a very important moment to think about past social movements and collective organizing in relation to structures of power and, um, you know, and, and how those structures of power are connected to leg- legacies of injustice. I mean, your work is centered on the United States, um, but also I understand your analysis is transnational. It's not about, you know, being defined by a particular border. Um, but of course, social movements in the U.S. have worked to confront, you know, very specific policies uh, and, and how those policies have... Um, detrimentally impacted the environment or workers, um, you know, in in different contexts. But I I think it's, your work is so important because it speaks to understanding intergenerational uh, social movements. And that is so important, especially right now with the ways that there is more of an awareness of some structural points of inequality, but maybe less of an awareness of how social movements have worked across generations to overcome these structural points of inequality. So that's my long way of saying maybe you could first just introduce yourselves and talk a bit about the book in relation to some of those points or any any other points. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. So uh, I'm Haley Pesson. I'm the co-editor of uh, this new book, Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century, Documents of Hope and Resistance. We got a long title, but it covers a lot. Um, and it pays homage to the work of Howard Zinn. So uh, my co-editor is here. Anthony, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, good to be with you both. I'm Anthony Arnov, and with Haley, I co-edited Voices of a People's History of the 21st Century, and with Howard Zinn, an earlier book uh, simply called Voices of a People's History of the United States. So yeah, to speak a little bit to what you said, I'm actually very, very happy you brought it up because it was something, uh, this intergenerational aspect of the book was something we talked about uh but I don't think actually fit in so directly into our intro to the book or any of the pieces we wrote. But it was so important because one of the things that 
I thought about coming to this project as someone who's been involved in movements since I was very young, but for whom most people may be coming to these new, newly radicalized and newly conscious because of the conditions we're living in right now, there's a, a much less awareness of either Howard's Inn among uh, younger people or even of the immediate histories that kind of got us to today. And so sometimes I feel like we're often in a position where it feels like we're having to reinvent the wheel. And one thing I think this book does really well, or at least what I uh, hope does really well, is draw some connections between people who were raising issues before they were popular. So, you know, we have Arundhati Roy speaking against the war in Iraq and talking about um, imperialism here and abroad. And that's obviously incredibly important today when we're seeing what the U.S. is doing in terms of funding Israel um, and the bombardment of Gaza. Um, and so there's a long history of people raising abolitionist ideas long before people started saying things like defund the police. And so we have you know, people who were raising um, abolitionist ideas much earlier, whether that's uh, the work of Angela Davis or you know, ideas like intersectionality um, by uh, Kim Crenshaw. But then we have contemporary um, activists speaking to those issues as well. So I think that knowing that we're part of a longer history and tradition and not uh, just starting out, I think is also a real source of hope because it can feel very isolating when you're just coming to these things and uh, finding that tradition, finding those links and seeing what worked and what didn't is a much stronger foundation to figure out what we can do next uh, because that's so crucial to be able to figure out what do we do next. Yeah, um, Hilly said that so well. And as I think about the intergenerational aspect of this work, I can't help but think of Howard Zinn and the fact that when I was working with Howard Zinn, you know, there was a significant age difference between us. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it was very important to me to bring in Haley as someone who is younger um, and who has experience in social movements that uh, was beyond the scope of, of my own activism and organizing and meant that Haley was able to help identify emerging and dynamic voices, partly uh, from protests that they had been involved in um, and hadn't necessarily surfaced the level of recognized speeches or figures or individuals, but who in particular moments of contestation over power had very important uh, articulations of a vision of transformation and strategies for transformation. So I love that in some ways, uh, Howard was a as much a collaborator as Haley was in, in this project for me. One focus point in this work is migrant justice and uh, immigrant rights movements. Um, so we're always in this situation where there's moments where crisis comes to a peak and there's a lot of conversation about, let's say, the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border or movements for status for undocumented people in the U.S. Obviously, that will come forth again in terms of there being, uh, you know, a lot of media hype around that. But in between these moments of media hype, there's a lot of work that happens. And I think that the pieces in the book speak to that. So maybe you could talk about 
those pieces in relation to understanding how essential that organizing community work is between the headlines. Oh, that's such a good point. Um, And I'm thinking now, speaking from New York, where Eric Adams, uh, the mayor, is cracking down and scapegoating migrants um, who are literally having to sleep on the floors uh, because there are supposedly not enough beds in the shelters. Uh, and yet we have so many unoccupied uh, housing complexes and apartments in New York that could potentially house all of them if it were politically viable or, you know, profitable to do so. And so that, you know, <laughs> certainly speaks to the current moment. And there are things like that happening all over the country. But in terms of the book, um, I think what really is important is that that organizing between the headlines is not necessarily just done by organizations um, that are, you know, established or nonprofits. A lot of that organizing starts with the people themselves who are directly impacted by this stuff. And so we have, you know, um, a piece by a young immigrant uh, rights activist. And when I say young, I mean, maybe the youngest piece in our book. Um, He's like nine years old, speaking to the deportation of his mother. Um, And so it's a letter um, talking about, you know, the need for his mom to come home um, and not be treated as a criminal. We have pieces by immigrant rights activists who were taking sanctuary long before the idea of sanctuary cities kind of came to the fore again under the Trump administration, occupying churches, occupying, uh, you know, uh, ground in order to be able to assert their rights as people who were contributing to society, who were trying to escape terrible conditions back home, um, and yet were being treated um, as criminal in this country. And so I think when we selected pieces, you know, there's a lot of different groups doing this work, uh, but this could be true of any movement that you pick in the book, which, you know, because it spans 20 plus years, um, covers a lot. But our, uh, we put, you know, primacy on the people who are directly impacted as the people who have not only the greatest stake, but a lot more to say. Um, and a lot more experience in terms of what it will take to win justice for themselves and others. And so seeing people not just as victims, but agents of their own liberation uh, was a really important thing in the pieces that we picked. You know, another thing that I think uh, comes out in the readings um, from this new book is that the immigrant justice movement has also been central to the revitalization of the labor movement in this country. Uh, you see real organic links between some of the organizing traditions uh, that workers have brought to this country from their histories of organizing in Latin America and elsewhere um, that have really uh, been vital. Uh, As you see in the last few years, a more militant labor movement, a a labor movement that's more willing to strike uh, and take other forms of job action that is trying to organize the unorganized, that is bringing in youth um, and understanding that the fight against xenophobia, uh, uh, against all the other divisions which are used to divide and conquer uh, workers in the United States is central to the fight for working class rights and for broader transformation of society. And so I think there's been less appreciation of that very important aspect of immigrant rights justice organizing uh, in this country, but you can't tell the history of the labor movement without it. There's um, 
I think a really important point here around how processes aren't static in social movements and organizing is not static. And if we're thinking about labor union organizing work, there's often this rhetoric, which you also even hear in progressive circles, which is the labor movements out of touch. Labor unions are not able to sort of maintain organizing at the level that they once were. But exactly to the point that was mentioned, um, labor unions have, in a lot of cases, been trying to work out ways to support undocumented workers or fast food workers. I'm thinking also of worker centers, which is a, another organizing model that's uh, happening also in Canada. I think it brings up this point of thinking about how um, there is an important revitalization that happens, uh, you know, over time and uh, across movements and um, sort of the importance of not accepting narratives of defeat, right, which is obviously <laughs> an important part of your book, right? But this, 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 this idea that transformation does occur and, you know, and structures and social movements evolve over time and sort of the importance of tracking those uh, evolution points too. Yeah, uh, I think that is a really important point when it comes to the way that we tell stories about movements as if they're happening in isolation from each other, when in fact they're often cross-pollinating. And so even if there's not an immediate victory felt, I mean, a, a very, you know, moving, at least for me, part of this book is there are a lot of people, a lot of voices in the book that are of people who did not live to see the victories, who did not live to experience the sort of fruits of their labor or the way that it's touched different activists. We have you know, a letter by um, Troy Davis, um, the uh, Georgia, you know, wrongly convicted black man who was um, executed by the state of Georgia to his attorneys, basically saying the struggle doesn't end with me. And we have um, Erica Gordon Taylor, who's the cousin of Emmett Till, who passed away a few years ago, um, talking about the links between the uh, you know extra legal violence that her cousin experienced at the you know uh, but also at the hands of the state and the police um, and white supremacist you know uh, legal system that we have today. Um, talking about that just a month before the Black Lives Matter movement sort of erupted in the way that we know it today. And so there are a lot of um, linkages in that sense. Uh, but then there's also the way that pieces are very intersectional. So we chose to make the book chronological. Um, it would have been very, very challenging actually to figure out where a piece on you know, environmental justice goes when it's actually also a piece about disability rights or it's a piece about um, you know, anti-racism uh, or it's about indigenous sovereignty. There, you know, the, the reason that that happens is not just because we have brilliant people in the book, which we do, who are thinking about things in this very overarching way, but also because the movements themselves were influencing each other in real time, whether you're talking about Occupy and uh, Black Lives Matter, you're talking about Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock, uh, et cetera. So there's there's a real importance to that. I also just want to say, you know, you mentioned the, the labor movement. There are a lot of, um, you know, pieces uh, in the book that are 
from the vantage of workers willing to not only take up their own conditions of work, but also willing to take up broader questions. So we have, for example, um, the Minneapolis bus drivers, you know, who refused to drive arrested protesters um, during the height of the uh, George Floyd rebellion to the prisons, um, literally withholding their labor in order to prevent that from happening. We have um, the Microsoft workers who spoke out against the use of their, uh, you know, technology that they developed in the service of military aggression. Uh, so there's um, there's ways that these things, you know, again, are not so segmented. They, they're impacting the people who are at a point where they have a lot more power, really, to to prevent these things from continuing and to shut things down. Yeah, speaking of, of kind of narratives that we um, use to think about our own organizing, I, I also think there's a tendency to be very short-term in our thinking. Um, and there's something very powerful about having a broader historical sweep. Um, you know, we, we were discussing earlier the early protests against the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I remember certainly being part of some of those demonstrations, which at the time were some of the largest demonstrations in U.S. history and, and, and in other countries um, uh, as well. Some of the largest demonstrations we've ever seen uh, and certainly on a global scale against uh, an imminent invasion and occupation of a country. Uh, and then, of course, the United States did go in and many other countries supported that. Uh, and we saw the devastation that took place in Iraq. And in the short term, there were many people who felt we marched, we failed, and that's the end of the story. But I think there's a much more complicated story to be told about what it meant for a generation of people to be radicalized, to come to understand uh, and have a deeper appreciation of the dynamics of imperialism, uh, and that an anti-war movement changed the contours uh, of the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq and ultimately prevented far greater horrors from unfolding than would have had there not been that uh, opposition in the streets and the organizing, particularly of groups like Iraq veterans against war, people who had actually served in Iraq and Afghanistan coming back and organizing and speaking out uh, against the war um, and materially impacting the ability of the United States to carry out its designs uh, and making it harder potentially to intervene in other situations where it might otherwise have. So it's important to understand in a more global context and in a wider historical context that movements don't move forward in some linear, clean line uh, on a straight path of always moving forward. And right now that's very important because we're in a period of backlash against the enormous protests and outbursts against the racial injustice that we saw in the summer of 2020. Some of the, again, largest and most significant demonstrations, interracial demonstrations in US history, if not the largest. Um, it was inevitable that that would provoke a backlash. And we're seeing the cost of that backlash now. But people were radicalized. People's lives were altered. Uh, and now it's important to look back at history and figure out how we have uh, come through periods of backlash and reaction, uh, 
going back in U.S. history, for example, to the Reconstruction era, what are the lessons we can learn and how can we anticipate better um, the future backlashes that will come from our efforts to organize and change powerful institutions that have a vested interest in the status quo? Thank you both. In what you just said, Anthony, um, you talked about looking at the anti-war protests against the occupation of Iraq as having a tangible outcome. And I think it's hard sometimes to look back and measure what that means. But in the current context, we can see, I think, a mirroring. The protests for ceasefire are having an impact. So the protests to pressure Western governments around the world to demand ceasefire are pushing radically in the heat of, you know, this moment, um, they're changing discourse. If we look at media coverage now versus a month ago, and sometimes it feels really intense to think about how the magnitude of struggle at these moments when so many people are losing their lives, particularly in Gaza right now. But and yeah, any sort of mirroring or thinking about why it's important to continue to protest and support movements demanding justice, you know, in these types of moments where sometimes the horror can be overwhelming. Yeah. You know, I think of um, one piece that we have in the book as an example of this, which was by two parents uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 saying, don't turn our son's death um, in the World Trade Center into, you know, fodder for this, for the killing of more people, for the occupation of more people. And they said it at a moment where actually that was before the anti-war movement had really kicked off, when it was like U.S. flags everywhere you went. And it was very, very, very hard for the small number of people in the in immediate aftermath who were willing to speak up against that. And I think that we had a similar dynamic now where in the immediate aftermath of uh, October 7th, it was very reminiscent of 9-11, the atmosphere of repression, the idea that you couldn't speak out against what we knew Israel was inevitably going to do and has continued to do. And I think the fact of people being willing to do that before we knew that there would be the seeds of a mass movement, which we're seeing now, gives people an anchor to see that they're not alone. You know, when I was in DC, 300,000 people marched um, in support of a ceasefire. I mean, that was really um, heartening and really not, uh, I think, well, well beyond what the organizers had expected, even though we knew it was gonna be historic. And it was the fact that people organized it and cho- you know, decided we're gonna do that because it matters we speak out against oppression regardless of whether we know you know, the immediate outcome. The fact is we don't know the outcome, right? We can't assume that it's going to go one way or another. But if we don't struggle, we'll never find out. And, you know, it's not just the discourse that's changing right now. Public opinion is shifting. The polling is quite remarkable. Um, The people, uh, particularly young people, who are um, opposed to what Israel is doing, opposed to Biden's policy of full-throated support, uh, for Israel's bombardment of Gaza. And it's opening up a very significant divide um, 
between young people who are much more critical, much more um, aware of the kind of historical dynamics. Um, and I think that is a very volatile situation and is likely to be the basis of from, for some significant organizing. And it's really interesting to me that right now you see not just Palestinian solidarity groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, not just students uh, who are, uh, uh, you know, facing Islamophobia and uh, other forms of xenophobia that are being targeted, but you have university administrators going after Jewish Voice for Peace and Jewish voices who are speaking out against uh, Israel's policies. Um, and I think it's making very clear that this organizing is actually multi-tendency, multi-faith, uh, and that there's a much broader group of people who reject the narrative of Israeli settler colonialism. And I'm very hopeful right now in this moment that is as extreme and as horrifying as the images from Gaza are, that we can have a material impact and make a difference. And I certainly think people in Gaza have been encouraged to see around the world, the opposition, the resistance, people in the streets speaking out um, and trying to bring an end to this genocide. Thank you both for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Stefan. We're really glad to be on your show. Thank you so much. That was a conversation with Haley Pesson and Anthony Arnov, uh, the co-editors of Voices of a People's History of the United States in the 21st Century. Uh, this book builds on the groundbreaking uh, book by Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. I'd encourage people to uh, look up this important work. This has been another edition of Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph. We air weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays on CJLO, also in Giajiage, Montreal on Wednesdays at 8.30 a.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, B.C. on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. on Met Radio 1280 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays and now on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We are also a podcast. Look us up at um, Free City Radio through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Also, please tell a friend about the program. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. We will be back next week. And thanks again to Anthony and Haley for joining the program. And I'll talk to you soon.